Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. You know, once each month, my friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., and I have the privilege of introducing a great preacher, past or present, on the Beeson Podcast. And today, it's the late Dr. Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers was the senior pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, one of the great congregations in the United States. He served there for 32 years following two other great legendary preachers, Dr. Ramsey Pollard, who was there for a briefer time, and then Dr. R.G. Lee, who was there for even longer, I think, than Dr. Rogers, going back to the 1920s. So this is a church that has produced some great preachers in the Baptist tradition, and Adrian Rogers is clearly one of those whose life and ministry will long be remembered by those who knew him and heard him. He had an engaging style. He was a great communicator. He uses humor along the way. And I think you're going to enjoy listening to this sermon of Dr. Adrian Rogers on the Ark of the Covenant. He takes an Old Testament text and then applies it in a very interesting way to the life of faith today. Uh, Dr. Smith, tell us a little bit about this sermon and what you think we should look for as we listen to it. Here is, as you said, a master communicator. He is a preacher's preacher, Dean. Uh, He is intentional about saying things that are very penetrable and piercing to, in this case, the student in seminary who's going to go out to pastor, to be a missionary, uh, to teach, etc. He is intentional also about initiating people into the faith in that he talks about Christ being represented by the ark in the presence and in the midst of his people. So one of the points he makes is that you know Jesus Christ can be found in the whole Bible. Exactly. He says it's a hymn book, an yes, H-I-M book. Yeah, <laughs> and he says if you read the um, Old Testament particularly and don't find Jesus Christ, you need to go back and read it again yeah. because Jesus is there. The Old Testament ble- bleeds with uh, the blood of redemption. So there. it's a Christocentric Very approach. much so. Very much so. And he sees the incarnation in the ark, in that uh, the glory of of God, in the presence of Jesus is there. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, he wants to say that there are five principles, Dean, uh, that are important for those who are going to live conscientiously as a Christian. That uh, the ark, which represents the presence of God, cannot be used or utilized, cannot be plagiarized, cannot be organized cannot be trivialized, and cannot be formalized. And he takes each one of these points out of an incident in this historical drama of the ark being recaptured and now in the hands of David and the people of God, and yet the same ark that was supposed to be a blessing winds up being a judgment upon them by the way they use it. So all these eyesed words as a kind of alliteration that exactly. he uses. And you did a good job to summarize that, if I can put another <laughs> little I-Z word in there. Now, one thing, uh, I really like his Christocentric focus. Uh, if I had uh, a slight critique, I wonder what you think about this. Uh, he does a great job of taking that Old Testament incident and of drawing these principles from it, which are just right on target, yeah. I think. But uh, does he really connect this in terms of where this incident comes in the history of salvation? Or is he maybe a little bit guilty of 
lifting it out of context and drawing these wonderful principles from it and kind of leaving it hanging in air just in where it fits in God's overall story. Am I wrong about that? I think it's a responsible critique. Of course, the context is that of preaching at Southern Seminary, so his time is limited. This sermon was also preached prior to his preaching at Southern Seminary uh, at Bellevue Church, where he would have had 40, 45 minutes to preach. But I think that Dr. Rogers um, would have strengthened the message had he gone back to creation and showed that God was originally in the midst of Adam and Eve and that he talked with them during the cool of the day and then ending it eschatologically with this same word actually for Ark in Revelation 21 and 3, that the tabernacle of God is with humans and they shall be his people and he will be their God so that the Ark of God, the presence of God is once again in the midst of his people which was God's divine uh, original intention. Yeah. Well, a few uh, summers ago, I had the privilege of preaching at Bellevue Baptist Church, where our friend Dr. Steve Gaines is now the pastor. Uh, and the work that Adrian Rogers and Dr. R.G. Lee, others have done over the years, still continues strong in that great congregation. And the Word of God is still going forth there with much clarity. So we invite you to join us now as we go to the chapel of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, to hear a sermon preached by the late Dr. Adrian Rogers. Would you take your Bibles and be finding 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4, please? 1 Samuel chapter 4. And uh, I want to uh, read uh, with you. Some verses, let's jump in at verse 2 and read down through verse 5. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army of the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? They were blaming their failure on God. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelt between the cherubims and the Two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. Looks like they're about to have the victory, doesn't it? But fast forward to verse 10. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. I want to talk to you about that ark. That little piece of furniture. That little piece of furniture about two feet by two feet by four feet made of wood. Covered with gold. On the top of it was a solid slab of gold called the mercy seat. A cherub on either end with their wings 
stretched out, and in between those wings was the Shekinah glory of God. That little treasure chest of blessing was representative of the Lord Jesus Christ because it pictured God's presence with his people. By the way, I want to say to every young preacher here, Jesus is in all of the Bible. If you read the Bible and you don't find Jesus, go back and reread it. Jesus said concerning the Old Scriptures, uh, Search the Scriptures for the, the Old Testament. Search the Scriptures, for these are they which do testify of me. The Bible is a hymn book. It's about him. From cover to cover, you read the Bible and look somewhere for Jesus. This ark uh, pictured the manifest presence of God, and it, it was mighty in power. It led them out of bondage. It led them into blessing. It led them through Jordan. And Jordan stopped. And so the people of God could get through, just as our Lord has stopped the river of death and judgment that we might get through. And it led them into battle. From victory unto victory. That ark led them. It was an incredible thing. It had awe-inspiring, awe-inspiring power. It pulsated with energy. It, it leveled mountains. It laid waste cities. It defeated the people, the enemies of God. It was an incredible thing. But then after a while, the people got uh, casual, backslidden, and they went into battle without the ark. They thought they could do it right well by themselves, and they got in a particular battle here, that a particular battle here that we have read about with the uh, Philistines, and the battle is going against them. And somebody said, go get the ark. <laughs> the, the King James Version says, fetch it. Fetch it. That it might save us. And they brought the ark, and rather than saving them, it almost destroyed them. Now I want us to have a study a little archaeology here today, okay? I, I, I want to talk to you, I want to give you five principles. And I pray God, the Holy Spirit, will indelibly write them upon your heart. And etch them into your consciousness. If you're going to serve the Lord, these are things that God has taught and is teaching me, and I pray, God, that he will teach you. Five things about Almighty God symbolized by this art. Number one, God will not be used. God will not be used. Now, they're in a battle. The battle is going against them. They blame God. And then they say, hey, fetch the ark. Now, God to them was an afterthought. They're going to use him. They've lost 4,000 men. They fetched the ark, and now they lose 30,000 men. 
You know, sometimes we get the idea that, uh, and by the way, two adulterous men were the ones bringing the ark. We get the idea sometimes that uh, God is going to give us victory in spite of our coldness, in spite of our backslidden condition, in spite of our sin, that God is going to give us the victory because we're his people and God is going to do that to protect his glory. Let me tell you something about God. God is the one who will engineer your failure. It's God who will engineer your failure. God gets more glory by the defeat of carnal people than he does by their victory. We have the idea that uh, the devil uncovered the television scandals of the televangelist uh, uh, five or ten years ago. It wasn't the devil that did that. It was God that blew the lid off. It was God that did that. God is not interested in covering sin. God is inter interested in exposing sin. And so after they were ignominiously defeated, God wrote Ichabod over the whole thing. The glory of the Lord is departed. One preacher went to a church for a revival meeting and a lady came to him and said, We ain't going to have no revival here. She said, God has written Michelob over the door of this church. <laughs> God has written Michelob over the door of a lot of churches. And, and, and I'll tell you why. We have the idea that somehow God can be used. Americans think that God is a part of our natural resource. We think that we can get the Bible and wrap it in the American flag and God's just going to bless America. We're going to use God. I remember before Desert Storm when uh, we saw what was happening there in Iraq. I believe that that Sunday, before the battle was ensued, or when it just began, we our attendance was up some 20%. But after the battle was over, no, we didn't praise God. We said, boy, how about that, uh, how about that Cohen Powell? How about that Schwarzkopf? Hey, man, what about those Patriot missiles? Boy, we kicked some you-know-what, didn't we? God didn't get the glory. Americans are always ready to use God. Let me tell you something, folks. Not only is God our only hope, God is our biggest threat. God is our biggest threat. They've got God in the camp. They brought the ark in there to use God, and God was saying, I'm not going to be used. I want to say something. One of the biggest dangers for a seminary student is to want to use God. Oh God, I want you to fill me with the Spirit because I want to be a great preacher. Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit said, I'm not interested. Well, fill me because I want to be a soul winner. I'm still not interested. Well, fill me because I want to be a Bible scholar. Ho-hum. Well, fill me because I want to live a holy life. I couldn't care less. Well, something seems to be wrong here. Wait a minute. Holy Spirit, I want Jesus Christ to be glorified in my life. By life or by death, 
Lord, would you use me? He says, is that what you want? That's what I want too. Yes, I'll use you. And by the way, I may make you a preacher. And I'll help you to understand the scriptures. And I'll help you to be a soul winner. And I'll help you to live a holy life. I will use you, but you will never use me. So many times we want to fetch God into our lives when things are going the wrong way and, and think that somehow that we're going to utilize Him. He will not be utilized. I was preaching in Romania with that man, I think, the modern apostle Paul, Joseph Son, the man that the communists tried to kill. <laughs> They said, Joseph, if you don't straighten up, we're going to kill you. He said, well, killing is your chief weapon. But he said, dying is mine. He said, I want to warn you. If you kill me, you'll be sprinkling every sermon I ever preached with my blood. So if you use your weapon, I'll be forced to use mine. They said, leave him alone. He's crazy. But I, I, I was riding around with Joseph in one of those little automobiles. They, they, they looked like a coffee pot over there. I said, how much is that car worth? They said, I don't know, but if you fill it up with gasoline, you'll double the value. And that, that, that little car. I said, uh, Joseph, speak to me about American Christianity. He said, I'd rather not. I said, no, please. He said, all right, Adrian. He said, uh, the chief word in America is commitment. I said, well, that's good, isn't it, Joseph? He said, no, that's not good. It's bad. I said, well, why? He said, Adrian, the word commitment did not even come into usage in America until the 60s. It was in the dictionary. He said, if you were to use the word commitment in Romania when you preach, and I'm translating for you, he said, I wouldn't even have a word to use to translate it. He said, when a new word comes into usage, it generally pushes an old word out. He said, I began to search to find out what is the old word that the new word, commitment, has pushed out. And he said, Adrian, I'll tell you what the old word is. Americans don't like the old word. They love the new word, commitment. The old word is surrender. And I said, what's the difference? He said, well, when you commit, you're, you're in control. You can commit to be a soul winner. You can commit to be a Bible student. You can commit to lose weight. You can commit to make so many payments on an automobile. Whatever you decide to do, you commit to it. But he said, if a person puts a gun on you and says, put them up, he said, you're not committed to anything. You're surrendered. You're surrendered. He said, we are his slaves. We don't come to him making commitments. We come to him in absolute surrender. God called me to preach when I was teenage. I never fought the call to preach. I am honored that God would give me the privilege to preach his gospel. People talk about what they would have been had God not called them. I went out of the field where I practiced football. I played football in Palm Beach High School. Walked out there on a summer night as a teenager. Said, God, I want you to use me. And that didn't seem 
good enough, and I got down on my knees. It was nighttime. I was by myself out on the practice field, and I said, God, I want you to use me, and that didn't seem enough. And I lay down prone, put my face down on the ground, spread out, and said, God, I want you to use me, and that didn't seem enough. And I made a little hole in the dirt for my nose and put my nose down in that hole in the ground until the dirt came up my nostrils, and I said, oh, God, I'm as low as I know how to get. I want you to use me. I didn't see a vision, I didn't speak in tongues, I didn't understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But God moved into my life, and I would be telling a lie if I said he did not. And there have been times then, since that time, when I've tried to use God, and it never works. But i tell you something, friend, God will use you if you let him. God will not be used. Second principle. Here's a second principle I want you to learn. Not only will God not be used, but God can't be captured. Uh, notice what happened here. Uh, the Philistines uh, captured the ark of God. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. And the ark of God was taken. The Philistines came and, and uh, took that ark of God. And then uh, read over in chapter 5. The first four verses. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. And when the, when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon. Now, who was Dagon? That was their silly fish god. And set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, I love this part, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left unto him. Now they have stolen the ark of God, the Philistines have, and put it alongside Dagon. Remember that. Now skip on down to verses uh, 10 and 11. We're in chapter 5. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They brought about the ark of the God of Israel to us, to slay us and our people. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel, and let it go again to it to his own place, that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was heavy there. Now, they wanted the, the God of the Israelites on their side. So they thought somehow that they could capture this God. They took the ark. When they got what they wanted, they didn't want what they got. Uh, they had calamity, sickness, a plague of rats. Uh, the ark finally ended up in a place called Beth Shemesh. They looked inside, 50,000 were slain just by looking inside this ark. What is the principle here? God will not be used and God can't be captured. You can't use somebody else's God. That's another great danger with young embryonic theologues. I'll tell you what it is. They want to try to capture somebody else's God. They go from conference to conference, from book to book, to preacher to preacher, to see what they're doing so they can do it. We want their program, their music, their power with God. 
And rather than appropriating it, they imitate it. The great, power, the great problem in America is second-hand religion. I remember reading over there in the book of Acts, chapter 19, where there were seven sons of Sceva uh, who were uh, fancied themselves as exorcists, casting out devils. And they came to a man that had uh, was full of evil spirits. And they came to this man and said, We adjure thee in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Come out of him. Not in the name of Jesus that I know. In the name of Paul's Jesus. That evil spirit, that man, that demon-possessed man, turned on those guys and left them stripped naked, half dead. That's second-hand religion. You know what's happening in America today? We have a lot of young preachers who are preaching things they've never experienced. They hear it on a cassette tape. It goes in their ear and out their mouth and never goes through their heart. It's second-hand religion. Millie Vanilli preachers. will not be utilized and God will not be plagiarized. Put it down. You can't capture God. The Philistines tried it. You try it. You'll get in trouble. Let me give you a third principle. Not only can God uh, won't be used and God can't be captured, but God cannot be managed. Now, I want you to turn over to 2 Samuel now, chapter 6. 2 Samuel, chapter 6. David now is king over Israel. And David sees that the ark has been in the house of a man named Abinadab. It's been there for 20 years. And David sees how Abinadab, a man of God, is being blessed by the presence of God there in his household. And David is wise enough that he wants the manifest presence of God with his people. And so, so David now begins to uh, make plans to get the ark. And so David uh, goes after that ark. And look, if you will, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baalia of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. Now, what is happening here is David says, I want the ark of God. 
And you've never seen such an organization as David had to go get the Ark of God. He had wonderful men, had 30,000. He had a good method. He had a new cart to haul the Ark on. He had wonderful music, and he had a great motive. Well, if you put the men, the method, the music, and the motive together, that's a pretty good organization. I mean, a lot of churches say that's what it takes to build a great church. And so here they are with this particular ark, but there was only one thing wrong with it. It was not God's way to do it. God had told uh, Moses how the ark was to be carried, and you know how it was. Not to be carried on some cart pulled by cows. It was to be carried on the staves of a certain rank of priests, was it not? Those staves that would go through the rings on the side of the ark. And, uh, but here's David now. He's trying to manipulate God. He's trying to organize God. He's trying to do it his way rather than God's way. Where did David get the idea of hauling the ark of God on a cart? He got it from the Philistines. First Samuel chapter 6 and verse 7. Says that's what the Philistines did. I'm going to tell you something, gentlemen and ladies. We have a lot of Philistine philosophy in our churches today. Uh, we didn't get it out of the Bible. I am amazed at how much Philistine philosophy has invaded the sanctuary. And we wonder what is wrong. We think we know exactly how to do it. The Philistines have taught us how to do it. But I'm going to tell you that God cannot be utilized, God cannot be plagiarized, and God can't be organized. Don't get the idea that all you need is a good organization. Friend, that, that is not true. Charles Stanley went to the First Baptist Church of, of Atlanta, Georgia, and he had not been there long. They had a crisis in the church. So he was meeting with all of his uh, men, and they were talking about it. And so Charles said, well, let's go to the Bible and see what God has to say about this. You know what one of those men said? Very sincere man. He said, preacher, God doesn't have anything to do with this. This is business. God doesn't have anything to do with this. This is business. You would be surprised how many churches are run with Philistine philosophy, Robert's rules, and all of that, rather than Almighty God. We're trying to haul the cart of God on a new ark. Well, I'm going to tell you something else, and I have to hurry now. Not only will God not be organized, God won't be trivialized. God won't be trivialized. Look in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. Of course they did. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be carried. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. Most likely he was a good man. But what he did was to put unholy hands on a holy thing. Now, God was not cruel. God had given a solemn warning in Numbers chapter 4 verse 15 that they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. You know what's happening today? Friend, there are people who are committing spiritual suicide 
by putting unholy hands on holy things. I cannot for the life of me, Mr. President, understand how some man, so-called man of God, can stand behind the sacred desk, open the holy book of God, and preach the holy Christ of God while he's living in immorality. I can't understand that. And they do it Sunday after Sunday. I'm petrified at the thought. Sometimes Joyce and I, well, we don't have arguments, but we're getting a big discussion, you know. And uh, she'll say, Adrian, you're wrong. I said, no, Joyce, you're wrong. But I can't prove you're wrong because you can argue better than I can. Boy, that makes me mad. And then I'll, I'll just, you know, walk out of the room, go into my study and sit down and I said, well, I'll, I'll prepare a sermon. Who am I kidding? I'll read the Bible. I'll pray. I can't do anything. So I get up and go in there and say, Joyce, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Forgive me, darling. How can a man, I can't even, I can't even study for a sermon if I have something in my heart, just a, an argument. How can a person... A so-called man of God take this blessed book in his hand and preach with unconfessed, unrepented of sin in his life. Don't you lay holy, unholy hands on holy things. You're committing spiritual suicide. God will not be trivialized. Let me just wrap this up and say there's one last thing. And I won't even reference it. You can read it because we are running out of time. God won't be formalized. Finally, David learns how to get the ark. This time he's carrying the ark correctly. This time David, dressed in a linen ephod, is so thrilled that the ark of God is coming back to Jerusalem. David is out in front of the ark. He is leaping and dancing and praising God with all of his heart. Michael, his wife, looks out of the window. She sees him. She thinks he's making a fool of himself. So when he comes in, she says with gold-plated sarcasm, How glorious was the king today. See, she was a king's daughter and a king's wife. And, 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 and Mr. President, her, her dignity was wounded. And David said, well, the servants liked it. And he said, if you think it's bad, it's going to get worse. Now, there are always those. You want me to tell you how to make some people unhappy? People in your church, you want me to tell you how to make them unhappy? You just get happy. You just get happy in the Lord. There are some people like the Grinch that Dr. Zeus wrote about. When he saw anybody having a good time, he bit himself. Now, I'm not talking about cheerleader enthusiasm. I'm not talking about wildfire. I'm not talking about saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord. If you haven't bent the knee to God, that's spiritual pornography and adultery. Don't you praise somebody that you're not committed to. 
But I am saying that if you love God with all your heart, this God cannot be contained. And the need of the world today is a burning, blazing, emotional love for Jesus Christ. That, more than anything else, will bring people to Christ. The joy of the Lord, it is the attracting power of the church. I had a lot I wanted to say about that, but I'm not going to say it. But I want to say this, and I'm just finished. Listen to me. We need the presence of God in our lives and in our ministry. And God will not be utilized. God can't be plagiarized. God can't be organized. God won't be trivialized. God can't be formalized. But He can be enjoyed. I love what this anthem was. That God will rejoice over you with singing. And may you rejoice right back. God bless you. And our response is to give God the glory. We do that in song, turning to Him for, to God be the glory, great things He hath done. Join me standing as we sing. Would you take your Bibles and be finding 1 Samuel? Uh, chapter 4, please. First Samuel chapter 4. And uh, I want to uh, read uh, with you some verses. Let's jump in at verse 2 and read down through verse 5. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army of the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? They were blaming their failure on God. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us. It may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, which dwelt between the cherubims, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. Looks like they're about to have the victory, doesn't it? But fast forward to verse 10. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. I want to talk to you about that ark, that little piece of furniture. 
That little piece of furniture, about two feet by two feet by four feet, made of wood, covered with gold. On the top of it was a solid slab of gold called the mercy seat. A cherub on either end with their wings stretched out. In between those wings was the Shekinah glory of God. That little treasure chest of blessing was representative of the Lord Jesus Christ because it pictured God's presence with his people. By the way, I want to say to every young preacher here, Jesus is in all of the Bible. If you read the Bible and you don't find Jesus, go back and reread it. Jesus said concerning the Old Scriptures, uh, search the Scriptures for the, the Old Testament, search the Scriptures, for these are they which do testify of me. The Bible is a hymn book. It's about him. From cover to cover, you read the Bible and look somewhere for Jesus. This ark uh, pictured the manifest presence of God, and it, it was mighty in power. It led them out of bondage. It led them into blessing. It led them through Jordan. And Jordan stopped and so the people of God could get through, just as our Lord has stopped the river of death and judgment that we might get through. And it led them into battle, from victory unto victory. That ark led them. It was an incredible thing. It had awe-inspiring awe -inspiring power. It pulsated with energy. It, it leveled mountains. It laid waste cities. It defeated the people, the enemies of God. It was an incredible thing. But then after a while, the people got uh, casual, backslidden, and they went into battle without the ark. They thought they could do it right well by themselves, and they got in a particular battle here, that a particular battle here that we have read about with the uh, Philistines, and the battle is going against them. And somebody said, go get the ark. <laughs> the King James Version says, fetch it. Fetch it. That it might save us. And they brought the ark. And rather than saving them, it almost destroyed them. Now I want us to have a study, a little archaeology here today, okay? I, I, I want to talk to you. I want to give you five principles. And I pray God, the Holy Spirit, will indelibly write them upon your heart and etch them into your consciousness. If you're going to serve the Lord, these are things that God has taught and is teaching me, and I pray God that he will teach you. Five things about Almighty God symbolized by this art. Number one, God will not be used. God will not be used. Now they're in a battle. The battle is going against them. They blame God. And then they say, hey, fetch 
the ark. Now God to them was an afterthought. They're going to use him. They've lost 4,000 men, they fetched the ark, and now they lose 30,000 men. You know, sometimes we get the idea that, uh, and by the way, two adulterous men were the ones bringing the ark. We get the idea sometimes that uh, God is going to give us victory in spite of our coldness, in spite of our backslidden condition, in spite of our sin, that God is going to give us the victory because we're his people and God is going to do that to protect his glory. Let me tell you something about God. God is the one who will engineer your failure. It's God who will engineer your failure. God gets more glory by the defeat of carnal people than he does by their victory. We have the idea that uh, the devil uncovered the television scandals of the televangelist uh, uh, five or ten years ago. It wasn't the devil that did that. It was God that blew the lid off. It was God that did that. God is not interested in covering sin. God is interested in exposing sin. And so after they were ignominiously defeated, God wrote Ichabod over the whole thing. The glory of the Lord is departed. One preacher went to a church for a revival meeting, and a lady came to him and said, We ain't going to have no revival here. That God has written Michelob over the door of this church. <laughs> and God has written Michelob over the door of a lot of churches. And, and, and I'll tell you why. We have the idea that somehow God can be used. Americans think that God is a part of our natural resource. We think that we can get the Bible and wrap it in the American flag and God's just going to bless America. We're going to use God. I remember before Desert Storm when uh, we saw what was happening there in Iraq. I believe that that Sunday before the battle was ensued or when it just began, we our attendance was up some 20%. But after the battle was over, no, we didn't praise God. We said, boy, how about that, uh, how about that Cohen Powell? How about that Schwarzkopf? Hey, hey, man, what about those Patriot missiles? Uh, boy, we kicked some you-know-what, didn't we? God didn't get the glory. Americans are always ready to use God. Let me tell you something, folks. Not only is God our only hope, God is our biggest threat. God is our biggest threat. They've got God in the camp. They brought the ark in there to use God, and God was saying, I'm not going to be used. I want to say something. One of the biggest dangers for a seminary student is to want to use God. Oh, God, I want you to fill me with the Spirit because I want to be a great preacher. Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit said, I'm not interested. Well, fill me because I want to be a soul winner. I'm still not interested. Well, fill me because I want to be a Bible scholar. Ho-hum. Well, fill me because I want to live a holy life. I couldn't care less. 
Well, something seems to be wrong here. Wait a minute. Holy Spirit, I want Jesus Christ to be glorified in my life. By life or by death, Lord, would you use me? He says, is that what you want? That's what I want too. Yes, I'll use you. And by the way, I may make you a preacher. And I'll help you to understand the Scriptures. And I'll help you to be a soul winner. And I'll help you to live a holy life. I will use you, but you will never use me. So many times we want to fetch God into our lives when things are going the wrong way. And, and think that somehow that we're going to utilize Him. He will not be utilized. I was preaching in Romania with that man, I think the modern apostle Paul, Joseph Son, a man that the communists tried to kill. <laughs> they said, Joseph, if you don't straighten up, we're going to kill you. He said, well, killing is your chief weapon. But he said, dying is mine. <laughs> he said, I want to warn you. If you kill me, you'll be sprinkling every sermon I ever preached with my blood. So if you use your weapon, I'll be forced to use mine. They said, leave him alone, he's crazy. <laughs> but I, I, I was riding around with Joseph in one of those little automobiles. They, they, they looked like a coffee pot over there. I said, how much is that car worth? They said, I don't know, but if you fill it up with gasoline, you'll double the value. And that, that, that little car. I said, uh, Joseph, speak to me about American Christianity. He said, I'd rather not. I said, no, please. He said, all right, Adrian. He said, uh, the chief word in America is commitment. I said, well, that's good, isn't it, Joseph? He said, no, that's not good. It's bad. I said, well, why? He said, Adrian, the word commitment did not even come into usage in America until the 60s. It was in the dictionary. He said, if you were to use the word commitment in Romania when you preach, and I'm translating for you, he said, I wouldn't even have a word to use to translate it. He said, when a new word comes into usage, it generally pushes an old word out. He said, I began to search to find out what is the old word that the new word, commitment, has pushed out. And he said, Adrian, I'll tell you what the old word is. Americans don't like the old word. They love the new word, commitment. The old word is surrender. And I said, what's the difference? He said, well, when you commit, you're, you're in control. You can commit to be a soul winner. You can commit to be a Bible student. You can commit to lose weight. You can commit to make so many payments on an automobile. Whatever you decide to do, you commit to it. But he said, if a person puts a gun on you and says, put them up, he said, you're not committed to anything. You're surrendered. You surrender. He said, we are his slaves. We don't come to him making commitments. We come to him in absolute surrender. God called me to preach when I was teenage. I never fought the call to preach. I am honored that God would give me the privilege to preach his gospel. People talk about what they would have been had God not called them. 
I went out the field where I practiced football. I played football in Palm Beach High School. Walked out there on a summer night as a teenager. Said, God, I want you to use me. And that didn't seem good enough. And I got down on my knees. It was nighttime. I was by myself out on the practice field. And I said, God, I want you to use me. And that didn't seem enough. And I lay down prone, put my face down on the ground, spread out and said, God, I want you to use me. And that didn't seem enough. And I made a little hole in the dirt for my nose and put my nose down in that hole in the ground until the dirt came up my nostrils and I said, oh God, I'm as low as I know how to get. I want you to use me. I didn't see a vision. I didn't speak in tongues. I didn't understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But God moved into my life and I would be telling a lie if I said he did not. And there have been times then since that time when I've tried to use God and it never worked. But i tell you something, friend. God will use you if you let him. God will not be used. Second principle. Here's a second principle I want you to learn. Not only will God not be used, but God can't be captured. Uh, notice what happened here. Uh, the Philistines... Uh, captured the ark of God. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. And the ark of God was taken. The Philistines came and, and uh, took that ark of God. And then uh, read over in chapter 5, the first four verses. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. And when the, when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon. Now, who was Dagon? That was their silly fish god, and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, I love this part, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold, only the stump of Dagon was left unto him. Now they have stolen the ark of God, the Philistines have, and put it alongside Dagon. Remember that. Now, skip on down to verses uh, 10 and 11. We're in chapter 5. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They brought about the ark of the God of Israel to us, to slay us and our people. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel, and let it go again to it to his own place, that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was heavy there. Now, they wanted the, the God of the Israelites on their side. So they thought somehow that they could capture this God. They took the ark. When they got what they wanted, they didn't want what they got. Uh, they had calamity, sickness, a plague of rats. Uh, the ark finally ended up in a place called Beth Shemesh. They looked inside, 50,000 were slain just by looking inside this ark. What is the principle here? God will not be used and God can't be captured. You can't use somebody else's God. That's another great danger with young embryonic theologues. I'll tell you what it is. They want to 
try to capture somebody else's God. They go from conference to conference, from book to book, to preacher to preacher, to see what they're doing so they can do it. We want their program, their music, their power with God. And rather than appropriating it, they imitate it. The great, power, the great problem in America is second-hand religion. I remember reading over there in the book of Acts, chapter 19, where there were seven sons of Sceva uh, who were uh, fancied themselves as exorcists, casting out devils. And they came to a man that had uh, was full of evil spirits. And they came to this man and said, We adjure thee in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Come out of him. Not in the name of Jesus that I know. In the name of Paul's Jesus. That evil spirit, that man, that demon-possessed man, turned on those guys and left them stripped naked, half dead. That's second-hand religion. You know what's happening in America today? We have a lot of young preachers who are preaching things they've never experienced. They hear it on a cassette tape. It goes in their ear and out their mouth and never goes through their heart. It's second-hand religion. Milly Vanilli preachers. God will not be utilized and God will not be plagiarized. Put it down. You can't capture God. The Philistines tried it. You try it. You get in trouble. Let me give you a third principle. Not only can God uh, won't be used and God can't be captured, but God cannot be managed. Now, I want you to turn over to 2 Samuel now, chapter 6. 2 Samuel, chapter 6. David now is king over Israel. And David uh, sees that the ark has been in the house of a man named Abinadab. It's been there for 20 years. And David sees how Abinadab, a man of God, is being blessed by the presence of God there in his household. And David is wise enough that he wants the manifest presence of God with his people. And so, so David now begins to uh, make plans to get the ark. And so David uh, goes after that ark. And look, if you will, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baali of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ahio, Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, 
And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. Now, what is happening here is David says, I want the ark of God. And you've never seen such an organization as David had to go get the ark of God. He had wonderful men, had 30,000. He had a good method. He had a new cart to haul the ark on. He had wonderful music, and he had a great motive. Well, if you put the men, the method, the music, and the motive together, that's a pretty good organization. I mean, a lot of churches say that's what it takes to build a great church. And so here they are with this particular ark, but there was only one thing wrong with it. It was not God's way to do it. God had told uh, Moses how the ark was to be carried, and you know how it was. Not to be carried on some cart pulled by cows. It was to be carried on the staves of a certain rank of priests. Was it not those staves that would go through the rings on the side of the ark? And, uh, but here's David now. He's trying to manipulate God. He's trying to organize God. He's trying to do it his way rather than God's way. Where did David get the idea of hauling the ark of God on a cart? He got it from the Philistines. First Samuel chapter 6 and verse 7 says that's what the Philistines did. I'm going to tell you something, gentlemen and ladies. We have a lot of Philistine philosophy in our churches today. Uh, we didn't get it out of the Bible. I am amazed at how much Philistine philosophy has invaded the sanctuary. And we wonder what is wrong. We think we know exactly how to do it. The Philistines have taught us how to do it. But I'm going to tell you that God cannot be utilized, God cannot be plagiarized, and God can't be organized. Don't get the idea that all you need is a good organization. Friend, that, that is not true. Charles Stanley went to the First Baptist Church of, of Atlanta, Georgia, and he had not been there long. They had a crisis in the church. So he was meeting with all of his uh, men, and they were talking about it. And so Charles said, well, let's go to the Bible and see what God has to say about this. You know what one of those men said? Very sincere man. He said, preacher, God doesn't have anything to do with this. This is business. God doesn't have anything to do with this. This is business. You would be surprised how many churches are run with Philistine philosophy, Robert's rules, and all of that, rather than Almighty God. We're trying to haul the cart of God on a new ark. Well, I'm going to tell you something else, and I have to hurry now. Not only will God not be organized, God won't be trivialized. God won't be trivialized. Look in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. Of course they did. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be carried. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. Most likely, he was a good man. But what he did was to put unholy hands on a holy thing. Now, God was not cruel. 
God had given a solemn warning in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, that they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. You know what's happening today? Friend, there are people who are committing spiritual suicide by putting unholy hands on holy things. I cannot for the life of me, Mr. President, understand how some man, so-called man of God, can stand behind the sacred desk, open the holy book of God, and preach the holy Christ of God while he's living in immorality. I can't understand that. And they do it Sunday after Sunday. I'm petrified at the thought. Sometimes George and I, well, we don't have arguments, but we're getting a big discussion, you know. <laughs> and uh, she'll say, Adrian, you're wrong. I said, no, George, you're wrong. But I can't prove you're wrong because you can argue better than I can. Boy, that makes me mad. And then I'll, I'll just, you know, walk out of the room, go into my study and sit down. And I say, well, I'll, I'll prepare a sermon. Who am I kidding? I'll read the Bible. I'll pray. I can't do anything. So I get up and go in there and say, Joyce, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Forgive me, darling. How can a man, I can't even, I can't even study for a sermon if I have something in my heart, just a, an argument. How can a person, a so-called man of God, take this blessed book in his hand and preach with unconfessed, unrepented of sin in his life. Don't you lay holy, unholy hands on holy things. You're committing spiritual suicide. God will not be trivialized. Let me just wrap this up and say there's one last thing. And I won't even reference it. You can read it because we are running out of time. God won't be formalized. Finally, David learns how to get the ark. This time he's carrying the ark correctly. This time David, dressed in a linen ephod, is so thrilled that the ark of God is coming back to Jerusalem. David is out in front of the ark. He is leaping and dancing and praising God with all of his heart. Michael, his wife, looks out of the window. She sees him. She thinks he's making a fool of himself. So when he comes in, she says, with gold-plated sarcasm, how glorious was the king today. See, she was a king's daughter and a king's wife. And, 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 and Mr. President, her, her dignity was wounded. And David said, well, the servants liked it. And he said, if you think it's bad, it's going to get worse. Now, there are always those. You want me to tell you how to make some people unhappy? People in your church, you want me to tell you how to make them unhappy? You just get happy. You just get happy in the Lord. There are some people like the Grinch that Dr. Zeus wrote about, 
when he saw anybody having a good time, he bit himself. Now, I'm not talking about cheerleader enthusiasm. I'm not talking about wildfire. I'm not talking about saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord. If you haven't bent the knee to God, that's spiritual pornography and adultery. Don't you praise somebody that you're not committed to. But I am saying that if you love God with all of your heart, this God cannot be contained. And the need of the world today is a burning, blazing, emotional love for Jesus Christ. That, more than anything else, will bring people to Christ. The joy of the Lord, it is the attracting power of the church. I had a lot I wanted to say about that, but I'm not going to say it. But I want to say this, and I'm just finished. Listen to me. We need the presence of God in our lives and in our ministry, and God will not be utilized. God can't be plagiarized. God can't be organized. God won't be trivialized. God can't be formalized. But He can be enjoyed. I love what this anthem was, that God will rejoice over you with singing. And may you rejoice right back. God bless you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.